Cousin Katie was her name. And she taught everyone in that one-room schoolhouse with all kinds of special needs, all ages, different learning abilities, and so forth. People learned. They learned. So if people could have done that back then, why can't we do it now? Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about interesting people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and today we are recording on the Midtown campus in the basement of White Hall with Dr. Teresa Canada. We'll be talking with her about teaching quality in early childhood education, something she's been researching. And after the interview with Dr. Canada, Student Government Association Vice President Barbara Villegas will talk about the campus events that are coming up in the next week or two. But first, here's Dr. Canada. Dr. Canada is an associate professor in education, has served on WCSU's faculty since September of 1992, and she's responsible for teaching undergraduate and graduate courses in social foundations, human development, educational research, and counselor education. Her research interests include cultural diversity in teacher and counselor education programs, African-American educational leaders, urban education and equity. She got her bachelor's and doctoral degrees from the University of Rochester and two master's degrees from Columbia University Teachers College. So the the research uh, that Dr. Canada and I are talking about today is important because the first relationship between parents and the school system can influence the rest of the child's career. Isn't that right? That's correct. That's correct, Paul. So you had did a study with 22 parents in Danbury. Some spoke English, some Spanish, and some uh, Portuguese. You did focus groups and one-on-one interviews and surveys to find out about parents' experience when their children went into kindergarten. Basically, what we're trying to see is usually the typical situation that exists for educators is that the teacher and or administrators inform parents as to what may be best for their child as they prepare them for early childhood education and as they enter the system. What I want to find out is to basically say what do parents view as important for them from their perspective for preparing their child in terms of quality education in early childhood situations. So that's good for parents to know. Oh, absolutely. But the thing is, it's also good for teachers and teachers, teacher preparation programs to know about this as well. Um, because if you start with children at this age, it's better, they're better prepared as they enter kindergarten, first grade, through sixth grade, and so forth. So I believe that it's important that we start at an earlier age as opposed to waiting until a child enters the school system. Right. Well, isn't one of the issues in Danbury uh, that there are uh, immigrant families here some of the kids don't speak English or very little English uh, when they're about to enter kindergarten. And uh, the school system feels um, burdened about uh, how to deal with, um, how to help kids learn uh, when they, um, first of all, don't speak English. Well, one of the things that this particular study provided for me and I guess hopefully shared with others because of course there's been some documentation of this research on the state level already um, and they're using this particular study as part of their um, quality improvement program for early childhood education. The thing that impacts Danbury because Danbury is such a very diverse community of, 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 of people here in terms of language, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. So what parents need to know um, is that there's a place for them, regardless of the, lang- the language differences, regardless of the ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status. So basically, this study was to look at parents and ask them what they felt they want to see in terms of quality education. So having access to this information would better prepare those who are preparing, uh, we're looking for these children coming into the system. It's going to be helpful for the school system. It's helpful for the community of Danbury to prepare people who are going to go through the system here and understand what's needed. Um, to better connect with parents who don't speak the language, who are not familiar with the system in terms of what's, what's to be expected of children as they enter kindergarten. And also, it's also a way to connect parents. One of the things that was very interesting about this particular research project is the fact that 
parents really felt this was the first opportunity that someone had really asked them to sit and give their perspective. And they didn't want to leave. We had, as I said before, you mentioned before, we had focus groups, we had interviews, uh, uh, structured interviews, and we also had a survey. And in terms of each of those categories, there was a strong strength in terms of people saying, well, I want to say this, and I want to say that. They had so much to say and so much to capture. Um, and they said this was, they were glad to be in an environment where they could be with other parents to discuss some of these same issues that they may have had. So I think that in itself was very, very important um, in terms of getting a perspective of what parents thought about here in the Danbury community. That is very interesting. It, there's been a lot of uh, work done over the years, efforts made to engage parents more, and uh, because it is hard coming into a new community when fig trying to figure out the school system, among other things. But uh, it's interesting that still these parents that you've worked with, sounds like they were still feeling that they weren't really connected yet. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we had, like I said specifically, you, you mentioned we, have, we had an English-speaking group, we had a Spanish-speaking group, and we had a Portuguese-speaking group. And even within those particular groups, there were some differences of opinions and some different voices that came out that would not have been uh, heard if I had not asked them the questions. Um, and they were just so happy that I asked, to the point where the, when it came to the structured interviews, there was only supposed to be two, two parents for each group. They were basically selected to, to, to provide <laughs> some information. And parents were fighting as to, why can't you ask me? I, I want to also be interviewed. I, so it was very interesting. Parents really, really, really want to have their voices heard. Um, I think Danbury, in a sense, is like, very example of what happens to an urban center when you have different voices, you have different parents, ethnic groups, different um, languages spoken. I believe, I know in Danbury High School, you have so many languages spoken in high school. Um, and with the various people who come through the system who now live in this Danbury area, you have to find a way to communicate. If you want students to be able to get to high school, you've got to start at the earlier age. So having this discussion, having this information to share with of the public with the policymakers in terms of what are parents' voices, what do they want to know, what do they want to hear, what do they want their children to know. All those are very important factors. And, um, you know, I, I have a quote that I want to share with you, and it says, investing early in the lives of children allows us to shape the future. Investing later chains us to finding, fi fixing the mixed opportunities of the past. That's a quote by Dr. Heckman out of the University of Chicago, I believe. And it's a very important part of what I think is important in our society as a whole, not just in Danbury, the city and the state of Connecticut, but also in our society. And I think unless we understand what we have to do at this stage, we end up spending so many resources to try to fix things later on in life. Um, and I think we have to find a way to communicate with parents differently than we have in the past. Um, and I have a story that I want to share with you about why I have this real interest and desire in early childhood education. It goes back to prior to my receiving my doctoral degree. I was a substitute teacher, long-term um, substitute teacher, in the New York City Public Schools. And at that time, I was offered a long-term position for like maybe four weeks. So this particular class was a second grade class. The teacher was going to be away for several weeks and asked me to cover the class. So I did, and it happened to be a class that also was in a school that was a bilingual school. A very large number of people in the school were basically Spanish-speaking parents, who, immigrants who had been there, between the Dominican population and the Puerto Rican population. So in essence, I found that there were a lot of parents who were Spanish-speaking as well. I found that when I had opened the classroom door, the parents would come and bring their child. And this is a second grader. These are small children. The parents would come, and they would stand at the doorstep, and they wouldn't come into the classroom. And they're, you know, I, this is wintertime, as a matter of fact, and I'm trying to pull the coats off and assisting the children. So finally, after the second day, I said, can you come in and help? You know, you can come in. And the parents hesitated. So the parents came in, and they started this procedure, helping remove the child's clothing and the boots and the coats and the scarves and the hats. So I was able to start my day sooner. This allowed me to be able to be better prepared to teach my children for the day. Okay. So parents assisted me in that process. And of course, at the end of the day, they came, they returned, and they assisted preparing the child to come in. What I found later on was the fact that the previous teacher had not allowed the, children, the parents to enter the classroom. Now, I don't know what the reason was, but for me, I felt that I had to be able to 
uh, communicate with the parents and see what the parents want to do. And they really want to come and assist. But if you don't have that understanding of the cultural perspectives, because many of these are Spanish-speaking parents, then you have to be able to find a way to communicate with them in some format. So having done that allowed me to be better prepared to be the teacher in the classroom by having the parents assist me with just simple things that's just like coming in, removing child's coat and the boots and the hats and, and, the, and the scarves and the gloves. So I, I saw this as an example of how you have to find a way to communicate with parents. And with the research that I've done, it confirms basically what I had found way back then when I was a doctoral student about parents' interests. And they have things they want to share and want to express. And they may not be that familiar with how to approach that. So I think we have to find a way to communicate with parents early on to assist not just our system of education and what happens in the community, but also to, hit, to assist so that children can be better prepared moving forward in the process. That, that's really what really you know, like resonated with me after that experience. So I bring that now into our, my interest in research in early childhood education. I think the conventional wisdom often is that parents, especially of um, people who, were, uh, who are coming into the system, the educational system for the first time, that these parents are not wanting to be engaged, uh, and maybe they're afraid to or whatever, but uh, they are not engaged as you just described. And it makes seems common sense that parents of a, of a second grader would want to know what's going on, whether they speak English or not. Well, that's second grade. So you can imagine what happens before a person enters the school system, early childhood education, four-year-olds, okay, three and four-year-olds. Parents are not necessarily familiar with the process, especially if they're coming from other countries and they have a certain philosophy from their country where they were from and they come here, so it's a different, you know, Everything's different for them. So they're just learning pretty much on the spot in terms of how to interact with the systems, with the schools, with the preschool programs. And I think that in itself, helping to educate parents better, is really part of the, the, um, the research angle as well. But at the same time, there are issues and there are concerns and there are topics that parents want the teacher or and the system to be able to share as well. Um, and many of them deal with the issues of teacher quality huge. They want the best teachers for their child. Okay. In my study, I found that parents said, even though it might have been a beautiful facility, they had the new facility and everything was wonderful, if they did not have a teacher who was a qualified teacher with credentials and a caring teacher, they felt they would remove their child from the school. As a matter of fact, one parent said she removed her child from three schools until she finally found a school for her, for her son, that he was not happy. This was a parent who was from, I believe, India. And she said that it was very interesting, but she said some, her son would cry. And she said, oh, he's not happy. So she said, I moved three times to, to finally find a school that, where my child was happy. So that, in a sense, is very important in terms of, yes, teacher quality is crucial, but the overall, uh, what superseded that was the fact that parents said, I want my child to be happy in the environment they're going to be in. Okay, So that's a starting point. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not even going to talk about the curriculum or other aspects of what parents see as important for them. They want to have a curriculum that's structured. Um, they don't want somebody just to come and babysit for their children. Um, they want to have certain things within the curriculum. So part of what I did post-research was develop a parenting curriculum, um, which came out of this particular research that hopefully eventually I'll be able to implement here at WestCon. Um, but this curriculum will help teachers who are preparing to work with children in the early childhood setting to better be able to connect with parents and fulfill some of the needs that are necessary for parents to be content with their settings with their children. Now I imagine almost all kindergarten, early education uh, teachers or all teachers, uh, do want to connect with parents, especially though at those younger ages um, when the parents are more likely to be in the classroom. But at the same time, we as a society ask teachers to do a heck of a lot, right? And Absolutely. we're always changing. I think we're always asking them to do more and more and more. Nothing ever drops off. We're always adding more, right? There are several layers that come into being an educator. Um, and I think Unfortunately, our society does not see the value that educators have in terms of preparing our society. Um, and I, I think that it's the point now, I mean, and I, unfortunately, the issue with 
early childhood educators is the fact that they're not compensated anywhere near what people are compensated from the kindergarten one through six, one through 12 system. And that was one of the issues that came out because part of the, the concern that parents had was the fact that the teachers may be well qualified, they may be caring, but the, the issue with high teacher turnover for early child education was crucial. They felt that that's a real bad issue because they said the connection between a child, they lose the connection, they lose that bond once they've established a relationship with their child. And then before you know it, the teacher's gone. And part of that had to do with the compensation that teachers in early childhood settings receive. So that's one of the things that we need to look at as a society in terms of making sure that we um, actually provide the compensation um, for these educators on the same level we do for the K-1 through, through 12 um, system. Um, but at the same time, as you move throughout this process in education, the, the demands of teaching are just so much. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I believe the demands on early childhood is even more so than it is as you move up the ladder. Um, you know, you're, you're concerned about the socio-emotional aspects of a child, you're concerned about the cognitive aspects of a child, the physical aspects, all of these are issues that the teachers on that level have to be really clear about and have a strong understanding of, because that will determine the direction of that child's future. Um, and unless we focus on that, then basically we're going to really miss out on our society. That's, that's my thinking. In the meantime, teachers are worried about whether their, uh, their students are scoring well on tests, right? Oh, that's another story. Yeah, that's another topic. We can have another podcast for that <laughs> one for sure uh, in terms of, you know, you know standards and testing um, in education and how it's impacting school systems um, and children. Um, as a matter of fact, and also the fact that teachers are being held accountable for the students' grades and, and whether or not they're capable of maintaining their positions as, as educators in the system. So that's another topic we need to get on it again. Um, but it's very different than it is for the, the same kinds of, of criteria, different for early childhood educators as it is for those who are already in the K-1 through 6 system and K-12 through system. So I, I think that um, it adds another burden to the, the, uh, the, the teacher's desk, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not that's gonna make sure that the child basically have a quality education. Does that determine a quality, quality education? We don't know. We're not sure if that's gonna be the issue. I mean, having a lot of testing and standardized testings, is that gonna be the, the telltale sign? We're not sure if that's gonna be the best way in which to do it. Um, there are a lot of discussions, of course, a lot of debates about whether or not you know, we should have these. And you know, basically, the child is suffering a lot of times, and also teachers are now being held accountable but whether or not their child, that, that they're teaching, passes this particular test. So there's a lot of debate out there about this issue, and I think it's going to continue until we can get a way in which we can find a way that we can equalize the process. Um, and we're not quite there yet. Well, mm. we're not quite there yet. There does seem to be conflict now between the testing and the idea of, say, in kindergarten or first or second grade, uh, making sure that the student, the child, is comfortable and happy with the teacher um, and uh, that the caring nature that you want, I think everybody wants it. Uh, early education teacher to have uh, in the classroom, too. Well, the other thing is this. Regardless of how nice a facility is, no matter how caring the teacher is, no matter how many degrees the teacher has, one of the things that parents say that's crucial, they want to make sure that that child leaves that system, that leaves the preschool, and is prepared for kindergarten. Mm. If you, you have to do these things to prepare my child for kindergarten. If these things aren't in place, that's why the curriculum is so important. If you were just babysitting my child, my child's not going to be prepared for kindergarten. So the parents say, well, I want to make sure my child's going to be prepared for kindergarten. And what is it you're going to share with me? What are you going to provide in terms of the curriculum that's going to make sure my child's going to be able to be deliberate and so forth and so on in terms of reading, arithmetic, uh, computer skills? I mean, even on this level, parents reporting that they want their child be computer literate okay they were as they enter kindergarten yes they want them to be because in our society look you can take a four or five year old now and you can give them an ipad so why should not they be literate and some of the parents whose economic situation is limited they feel if they're in a system in a school you know program in a program that they say okay my child can learn here um, and the other things like exposing them to different things within the community. They want to take them to the Danbury fire station or, or the police station or places where they can expose them to other kinds of settings. Because education, as we all know now, is not just basically what's in the books. Education is pretty comp comprehensive in terms of what the exposure for that child is like. 
And one of the things that came out of the study was that the parents want their child to be exposed to things that's in the community. Um, take them on these field trips. Let them to be exposed to different things that happen in our society, what's happening down the street, or what's happening in, in, in the community, or a parade, or something that, that exists that they can learn more about, um, other than just that they may not be able to provide for their child. Um, and to supplement what they already are providing for their child. But the other thing that came out of the study was that, which was very, very interesting, and this was across the board for all the, the parents, they want to make sure that their child is exposed to a multicultural environment in those programs, in terms of students, in terms of teachers and administrators. Hmm. They said that's key because our society is more diverse and they want to make sure that their child is prepared for relating in a diverse society. So I think even with the issues of testing and so forth and so on, there are other issues that parents are very, very concerned about in terms of preparing their child to be able to function in our society, just, just general function in our society. And without that early preparation, parents feel their child's not gonna be successful moving forward. Do you agree with that, that these early years are crucial to success? Absolutely, in high school? absolutely. And I, I believe that at, as, at that age, children should be exposed to as much as possible. There was this, the, the theory that, oh, they don't know about this yet. They don't, they don't have to be prepared about this. And I'll just say my own personal experience. Um, I, I have a nephew who was three years old as my first nephew. And I've got something very excited about that. But this was years ago, of course. And I sat and I taught him how to read. He was three years old. And I had an aunt who said, oh, just leave him alone. He's too young. Just give him some time. Wait, wait. I said, no, I'm going to start this right now. And I did. I taught him how to read. And I think my, my sister was uh, in the hospital um, having her second child at the time. And I, my, my nephew was staying with me. And I was staying with my mom at the time. And I was helping out. So it's funny because thinking back on it, I said to myself, gee, you know, um, Having done my study now, I'm like, gee, that was, he was three years old. That was the age of the early childhood, and he was learning to read. So if that took place, you know, it must almost like 15 years ago, why should parents think now? But you have to also remember, some parents feel, oh, just wait, it's not time, and just give us some more time. And, and that's understandable, but I think you need to expose the children. And when you expose them to different environments, they'll be able to adapt. Okay, this whole theory to play. They want their children to play and explore and, and see different things and, and explore different places. That exposure prepares them for them, their lives and their careers and, the, and their livelihood moving down the line. So you don't want to wait till they become high school seniors and say, okay, now what are you going to do with your life? Um, what happened when they were three and four years old? What did you do then? So yes, I'm a strong proponent of, of quality early childhood education. There's no question about it. How did you find these uh, or choose the parents that participated in the study? Fortunately, I had a very good connection with um, an agency here in Danbury. One of the major requirements of the grant, was I received a grant to do this research, the grantor, the Grousey Memorial Fund, part of the requirement is that I part, get a community partnership of one of the uh, groups that work with them in terms of working with early childhood. And it just so happened that Danbury Children First was one of those organizations here in Danbury. So I worked very closely with the Danbury Children First, Children First and at that time was Linda Costco, who was executive director of the, of the agency. And she was our community partner in terms of helping select our parents, the process of going through providing access, contacting different agencies and different programs and saying, hey, we have the study going on, you know, what parents would like to you know, participate. And that's how we were able to gather those, those individuals. And it was a, basically, it was a composite of different groups of people within the Danbury community who attended different kinds of programs throughout the city of Danbury. And they were all very supportive. And um, we didn't want a very, very large sample because, you know, the funding wasn't that great, but I'm just saying it, we wanted to have a size enough that we could at least get an intimate relationship with some of the parents. And we were fortunate to be able to get three different groups, like I said before, the English-speaking group, Portuguese-speaking group, and the Spanish-speaking group. And I think that brought a wealth of information that we would not have had otherwise because they are representative of this Danbury metropolitan community. And Danbury Children First is one of these groups or organizations that's working with the school districts to... Um, help bring parents into the system and educate parents too. Exactly. And uh, but there are some parents out there, aren't there, that um, aren't as engaged in their kids' um, development? That's across the board, Paul. I mean, there are parents who don't even know what to do. Mm -hmm. Okay, and there are parents who wish they did know what to do. Um, 
I think that my concern now is the fact that um, we have to find ways to engage parents differently. The traditional ways of having like, you know, parents come to open school and have parents come and help in the classroom because of a way in which parents, now both parents work, or their parents who don't have the resources to even get to the locations. So I think we have to find different ways. Unfortunately, with the technology, that in a sense has assisted because what we provide, even with our survey, it was done electronically or online. People, parents were given the link and they were sent a link to their, and they provided the link through their emails and they were able to respond to the survey via the, via the, um, the web. So even in our process of doing the research, but there were parents who didn't have access to computers. So we were able to um, work jointly with the Emory Children First, who were assisting parents to make sure they had access to the computer. So when I say about a joint partnership, it was a strong university uh, community partnership between the Emory Children First and me coming from the university. Uh, and I think we need more of those kinds of partnerships, not just because it's good for the you know, community, but it's also good for the university. Because we are in a university. If we can prepare these young children to get through the system, you know, it helps with maybe they say, hey, you know, we had a, a parent saying, yeah, yeah, we had a research project, and it was from, university, from our university here in Danbury. Well, maybe my child will end up going to the, you know, the university when they graduate from high school. So those are things we have to think about in terms of, like, growing our own. So the connection between Danbury Children First in terms of working with the schools in the community, um, because they work with early childhood programs within the Danbury community, and also the fact that they worked with me in terms of this research project, which took us a while to do this, because I had promised Linda Costco several years ago that I would do some research with her when I got settled in. And we finally connected, and we did this. It just so happened it was a good fit for me, um, and, and the fact that she had access to the parents. Um, so it was like a, a win-win situation for me all around. So I'm, I'm very pleased with how the process went in terms of the research project. Um, I was very surprised by some of the results of the research, um, but not really. But I was kind of surprised um, because I didn't think that each group would have very much in common, but they pretty much had a lot in common. Um, and that says a lot about our society, says a lot about Danbury um, in terms of what they can use to access parents and hear parents' voices and maybe implement some of this as we move forward in, in the early childhood programs. They had a lot in common in, as far as their expectations. Oh, absolutely, that. yes. Parents want the best for their child. Mm -hmm. GP, you know, every parent wants the best for their child, regardless whether they speak the language, regardless whether or not they have any money, whether they have a lot of money, they all want the best for their child. So in terms of, you go across every strata in terms of socioeconomic status, in terms of the different ethnic groups, the different languages are spoken, every parent wants the best for their child. I don't, I believe not one parent has said, oh, well, this is good enough. Not one of them. They all were adamant about they want the best quality education for their child starting out. And they were really aware of the fact that if they don't get it starting out, it's going to be difficult down the line. They were aware of that. Not that they said anything to do with it, but they were aware of it. So I think that having parents speak and hear their voices, to me, was so crucial. Um, and I believe that we need to implement some of these, um, the, some of the results into our curriculum. Um, here, we don't have a specific early childhood program here at Western, at Western yet. But I'm just saying across the board in terms of the state, um, they are implementing some of the research I, I said already in terms of the early childhood office here in, in, in the state of Connecticut. So let's hope it moves forward as we continue this. And I continue, continue to do some more research moving forward with this project. Uh, that's my goal. Mm -hmm. um, this is a small sample, 22 parents. Um, hopefully I can get a larger sample and maybe do a larger um, study to see what some of these parents thought as a whole. Do you have an idea about what? the future might look like as far as uh, engaging parents earlier on and more parents in a school system setting or how that might happen? Uh, is it going to be individually teacher by teacher or is it going to be school district by school district? Or? I think it's going to be difficult. It's going to be a difficult process because everybody has their different, their lifestyles are so different. There's no, um, you know, we think about the typical family um, and I don't think that we see the typical family, the typical nucleus family, it doesn't necessarily exist for everyone. So what would have been pro okay for that type of environment is not necessarily okay now. We have blended families. You know, you have so much going on and you have to look at things differently. So we have to find a way to make sure we can engage parents differently. Um, and if we don't engage the parents early on, then we don't engage the child early on. So I think within our society, and here, especially in, in, with Danbury, you have so many great programs working with uh, early childhood programs here in the city, uh, city of Danbury. You have an opportunity 
to take some of the research that's been um, conducted and apply it um, within the programs that exist and have a linkage between the early ch childhood programs and the, the uh, Danbury Public Schools um, as well. And I think that we can learn from that uh, in terms of what may be a way to connect better with parents. Um, and I believe if we don't find this way soon, we're going to lose a lot of young people. Um, we're going to lose a lot of young people moving forward. Um, because if the parents are not engaged, how do you expect the child to be engaged? Mm -hmm. You know, um, it starts with the parent. Starts, and you know what? No one teaches anybody to be parents. <laughs> you know? So, you know, we, you know, I think part of the process is that parents were learning in this process with the research, that, you know, they were, they were interested in what other parents were saying because they, they don't have that ability to sit, especially those who, you know, work. They don't have the ability to sit and hear what other parents' views are. And they were really surprised that their views were very similar to parents who were sitting around the tables. So I think that is something parents want to do more. As a matter of fact, I said they were fighting over who wanted to give the information for the research. So um, I think that we have to find a way structurally um, within our system to provide a venue where parents can become more engaged and provide something to the system um, because they have a lot to say and they have a lot to offer to our system to help our help the teachers and administrators to better prepare their children. That, that's how I look at it. And actually, that could be a relatively low-cost, low-investment yes. kind of a thing to do, right? Yes. The cost, I'm telling you, the cost now is a lot less than the cost would be to incarcerate somebody, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, when they turn 8, 7, 16, 17 years old. So you think about the investment in a child. Matter of fact, the investment in a child is better than the stock market. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to say, if you want to compare anything, I think it would be better than, you know, investing in the stock market. So... You know, your chance of having a child to be successful through the system is better when you start early. Um, you don't want to wait until, like, a child becomes, even, you know, basically some researchers said by the fourth grade, if you can't, you know, by the fourth grade, you may lose a child by the fourth grade, okay? So fourth grade is, like, really not much. It's like a nine, eight or eight-year-old, eight or nine-year-old. Eight nine so, you know, you think about an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, you lose them. Yes, that can happen. Um, and in terms of different ethnic groups, it's even worse. If you talk about Latino and um, African-American community, if you, especially black males, you've kind of lost them. If you can't get them by the fourth grade, you've, you've lost them. So I'm thinking that we have to look at the way in which we take time to invest in assisting parents okay, to better prepare their children to come into the system and better prepare teachers to know what to do with the parents to try to prepare the, the children in the classroom. I think it's a, it's, it's a two-way situation. It's not just one way or the other. And we've traditionally just been saying, we as educators, we know the knowledge, we have the education, so we need to tell you what you have to do as a parent um, with your child. I think it has to be looked upon in a different viewpoint. Um, I think parents bring some other kinds of knowledge, we call it different kinds of knowledge, to the table when working with children, especially in an early age. Um, and I think that we have not been as conscientious about listening to those voices. And I go back to my experience when I was working as a doctoral student, how parents, they knew what they wanted for their child, and they said, well, I want to help my child. So any way they can help them, even the ones who are not as well educated, they figured, well, let me, what do I need to do to help my child? Well, maybe I can't come to the school to help in the classroom, but maybe when they come home, I can get more engaged in their, their, their classwork or their homework um, or the activities that they have to do in class. So at all areas, I found parents wanted the best and they want to be able to be engaged. Now, of course, there are parents, that you mentioned before, who are not as engaged. And there may be a variety of reasons for that. It may be because they don't know, don't have a language, they don't understand, they don't have educational background. But I, I you know, Paul, I have to say something about that. I, I don't take that as a, as a good excuse. Um, I have a relative who was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. And this was like years ago in a rural one-room schoolhouse. Um, it was a cousin of mine, um, way before my time, of course, but I heard about the stories about my cousin. Cousin Katie was her name. And she taught everyone in that one-room schoolhouse with all kinds of special needs, all ages, different learning abilities, and so forth. People learned. They learned. So if people could have done that back then, why can't we do it now? Okay. Um, we just have to take the time and focus on the child and what the child's needs may be. Um, and we work with that. Um, Every child has a gift. And I believe the goal of every teacher, no matter what level they teach at, is to find that child's gift and to be able to expand upon that gift for that child. Um, that's the best service that a teacher can do for a child. 
and I'm a witness of that myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying to you, one of the major key issues for teachers is to find that, help that child find that gift and help cultivate that gift for that child. Um, and that starts at an early age. And I think if you can do that at an early age, I think we would be a better situation, not only in Danbury, but also across the state and across this country in terms of providing uh, citizenry that really have been invested in as an early age and that can produce so much later on in life instead of having to worry about the cause that we've lost this child over the, the years for whatever reason. So those are some of my own concerns about making sure that we invest in children at an early age instead of waiting later on. Sometimes it's too late. It's just like um, I show a video about twins and how you know what happens to twins at a certain age. If you, the developmental process of, of, of twins and you know how if they don't separate a certain point within the prenatal care, then they become Siamese uh, twins. So, you know, we want to be, and that's more difficult to separate the child at that stage as it was earlier. So I'm thinking it's the same process in terms of developmentally. We want to start early, invest in a child early, try, you know, help develop that child at that point. As they move through the system, they continue, we continue to do that. We continue to look at the child and support them throughout the process. And I have to say it is difficult um, because of the structures within our society in terms of the demands on teaching, um, or getting greater, the accreditation that we have to go through to become teachers. All of those are factors. Um, and even now, for example, in the state of Connecticut, um, preschool teachers will have to all have a bachelor's degree. Um, and um, it's challenging because these teachers don't earn that much money. Uh, and they're required to have this degree in order to teach in a preschool program. So we are challenged by that to make sure that these people are qualified and that they're able to sustain themselves as they're preparing themselves to be qualified. So, you know, the state may look, have to look at ways to, in order to offer some kinds of incentives for people to be able to get the kinds of training that they need to not only become a, a certified preschool teacher, but also to maintain professional development. Because one of the things that came out in the study was that parents are saying, well, yes, we have, we, you, you have a teacher, but she's been out of the, she's been in the system for like so long, she has no connection to what's going on. And when's the last time this person's been to a professional development activity. So the process of being a teacher, you have to continue to maintain your, um, your knowledge base um, and your subject matter. So parents want teachers to just know about preschool. They want them to know about toddler care, infant care. Um, they want them to have continuous professional development so they know the learners, learners techniques and learners methods that are helpful for their child. It was amazing what these parents were saying. So, and the other parents were sharing. So even parents who were sitting on the table who weren't familiar with these, they heard it from these other parents. So I think that the connection, you know, it's hard to get people together like that. Um, in this case, it was a research project, and I, and I thank the parents for their participation. But it's saying to me, if these are parents that think like that, there are other parents out there who think the same way. Okay, and I think that we as a society need to, to think about that in terms of how we prepare um, our teachers who teach people who become, become teachers. So teacher training and teacher preparation is very important in terms of not just K-1 through 12, but also uh, the early childhood programs as well. And of course, you know, um, those of us here at Western who works, work in the education department, we prepare teachers. Um, and we want to make sure that we're prepared enough to, so we can, you know, impart this information to our, our students who are going to become teachers. And so part of my research was a way to say, okay, me as an educator who prepares teachers, that I want to say, what are some things that parents say that are important for them, for their child, so we can better be, be better teachers for their, for their children. So it's, it's a connection, Paul. It's just a, it's a connection. It's not just cut and dry. It's a connection. Um, and there's an intersection between, you know, with the parents who say, yes, we want the best for our child, and for teachers to say, we want the best for the children who we teach. So I think it should, have, it should be a mutual situation that we're connected to the point where we're all on the same page. It sounds like it might be a little easier to do that when everybody's in a one-room schoolhouse, as uh, chaotic <laughs> as that must have been, than it is uh, now. Does your research, are you working on uh, expanding this research project now and taking it to another level, or what do well, you what, what I've done, I've done is what I've done, I've taken from this research and I've developed a parenting curriculum. And I actually implemented it here at Western. Um, we have a child care center here on campus. Um, we, uh, Mrs. Halpern is the current director, and she is, as a matter of fact, um, a person who I'm going to connect with again 
to if we want to do something moving forward. But she was able to use her site as the site to implement the parenting curriculum with her curriculum with her teachers. And um, I have not produced the research for that yet, but that's going to give you another idea of if the, if the parenting curriculum was, was effective in terms of the teachers using something to work with parents. So um, that's the, the, the second step that I've already done. Um, and after that parenting curriculum, um, uh, we'd like to implement that in other programs. My goal is to prepare a class. I've come up with a, a development of a, a class in which parenting curriculum is going to be offered in the, in the classroom um, so we can teach future teacher preparation programs where they can say, here's a curriculum for parenting, you can see if you can use it. But we have to start here at Western. So once we have our classes set up for early childhood education here, that I can use this parenting curriculum as part of the curriculum that I'm teaching teachers here at Western. That's great. So we'll bring you back for another podcast when you have all that information. Okay, <laughs> okay Paul, that's great. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Canada. Now, stay with Barbara Viegas and me as we talk about upcoming events on campus. How's it going, Barbara? Pretty well, how about you? It's good. Okay. You got a lot going on this week? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um... We have a lot going on. Uh, so just starting off with SGA, mm -hmm. uh, we have SGA elections coming up. Um, there's an information session in the Student Center 216 at 7.15 p.m. on Wednesday, October 25th. Uh, so we're going to be explaining explaining what positions are available, which is like senator positions and representative positions that are that is actually new this year. Um, so senators uh, have to submit an election packet by Monday the 30th by 5 p.m. and it's um, to be elected for the spring semester of 2018 and also a representative position that um, is more of like you speak to our SGA president Carlos Santos and you're kind of like elected in SGA votes on whether they believe you to be fit for the position or not and that's kind of like a new position that we came up with um, it's less of a responsibility than the senator position um, it's just for people that want to get involved but don't have too much time um, to come every Friday for our meetings or they want to get involved in different committees, but they can't um, have like bigger time commitment, that kind of thing. So Carlos will interview them and decide if they're uh, ready to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's so you just um, just talk to our president, and then um, he'll um, tell you about like the different um, qualifications and everything, like a GPA requirement, that kind of thing. But um, basically, like if you're interested, it's not too difficult to be representative especially because it's a new position so i think we only have two right now mm. um so we really want to like grow our senate and our house of representatives and your position isn't up is it no 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 yeah. <laughs> not yet <laughs> still got another semester ahead of me good um so also we want a lot of representatives and senators to represent different schools because we're trying to make the sga represent more of um, the student body because right now we have a lot of like Ansel School of Business but we don't have a lot of like VPAC, um, School of Arts and Sciences, that kind of thing. So we really want to like broaden the SGA so we really have um, a voice for every single um, school and all that, that kind of thing. That makes sense, right? Yeah. So um, any questions you just email men, M-E-N-005 at connect.wcsu.edu and he can explain like everything to you. Is that somebody's last name? Yes, yeah. Danny Men. He's in charge of the elections committee. Um, also, SGA is having the spot on October 26th in the Colonial Corner from 12 to 3 a.m. That's one that I'm hosting and putting together Ooh. with my committee. It's a Halloween theme. There's going to be food and like a DJ and everything. We just ordered decorations. It's very cool. We have like a fog machine and everything, so wow. it should be very fun. Um, also, That's a pretty small spot, right? You'll be covered with fog. You won't be able to see anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, I spoke to Mark Agnew to make sure that it was okay because, um, I don't know, it's a very small, like, colonial corner, but it's pretty good because um, the more people that come in, like, more like the more crowded it seems and, like, the funner it'll be, I think. Yeah. So that'll be really exciting. Um, also, as always, Tiesto, November 11th, $23 Our for students. Yep. Um, we got just got the cardboard cut out in, like, last week. <laughs> so he's there every Wednesday um, from sometime between 11 to 4. Um, where there's cookies and music outside the student center. So you can just stop by, get a cookie if you follow us on Instagram at WCSU underscore SGA. Um, and yeah, that's really cool. Um, also, we have our fall bash, November 6th through 11th, and Tiesto is like the last day of that. Um, but the SGA is putting on um, SGA Day, um, which is really cool. It's Wednesday, November 8th, 
and it's basically just like meeting at the SGA. My committee is still putting together exactly what we're going to do. We've thrown around some ideas like a bowl, like, you know, apple cider maybe, whatever. Really, we haven't decided yet, but it should be like a fun little get together. Um, so that'll be fun. And there's also a lot of other events that week as well. So but, you SGA guys take your uh, position seriously, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And you like to talk about it? Yeah, <laughs> especially because um, the executive board is just like, it's really important to have like a really good executive board so that everything else works like productively and everything so we're really passionate about what we do we also do like a minimum of like 10 office hours a week mm -hmm. um and then the president has to do 20 but it all ends up that like we all do like around 20 anyway mm -hmm. <laughs> president probably does like 25 but yeah it's a lot but it's very fun um okay so pack also has a really cool events um this week and next week uh they have a halloween town showing october 26th and 27th on October 26th in the Midtown Student Center Theater at 6 p.m. And on the 27th, it's on the West Side Ballroom at 6 p.m. So that's pretty cool. You get to watch Halloween Town. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also the Rocky Horror Picture Show on October 27th in the Danbury Palace Theater at 9 p.m. And basically all the information on all their events is at WCSU underscore pack uh, on Instagram. So you guys should follow them too. Have you ever seen Rocky Horror Picture Show? I haven't. Are you going at midnight? Huh? You're supposed to watch it at midnight. Really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, I haven't seen it, but maybe I'll go to their um, premiere. In the old days, they used to, everybody would light, bring Vic lighters and light them up, uh, which, of course, you can't do anymore. <laughs> that seems kind of cool, though. Okay, uh, Rec has their Trail of Torment, uh, October 27th, again, the day after at the spot. And it's at the Illinois Pavilion from 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. And then... You basically just venture through the darkness and the screams on the west side of campus and just get scared in your <laughs> groups. So it should be really cool. I know our president walked through it the other day super early in the morning to like see what they have already and some of the things that they have are really cool. On their Instagram, they have some of the pictures of like the things that they have hung up. Um, west Con Rec, at West Con Rec on Instagram. Um, they have a lot of the pictures that they have like for the trail and it looks really cool that's so cool far. that's amy shanks doing that right uh yeah uh, so she gets a, into I it i forget what student it was but he's doing a really good job so far hmm. um also basketball uh they have a midnight madness madness on the week of um fall bash on thursday november 9th um we all know what midnight madness is it's gonna be pretty cool they came in and like pitched the idea to our executive board it sounds really cool they're very passionate about it um, they're gonna have t-shirts and like music and a lot of different contests. No so both teams or the men's team only or what? Nope, both of them. They're Excellent. collaborating on it and it's very cool so far. They're really excited about it. And also there's um, for football, it's their senior day on Saturday, October 28th at noon, right before their game. So mm -hmm. it should be nice. So all the seniors say goodbye. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, we have um, Mr. and Mrs. Westcon, which is sponsored by Sigma Chi and Sigma Delta Tau and SGA. Um, it's November 6th at 8 p.m. Uh, the first prize winner is $150. And to enter, you just had to do a video submission to Mr. and Miss Westcon at gmail.com. Uh, it's basically just a video um, previewing, previewing your talent and why you want to help raise money to the Huntsman's Cancer Institute and Prevent Child Abuse America. Uh, it's a $5 submission, and finalists are chosen November 3rd. I know that one of our SGA members um, is sitting, it's basically a panel at the sides at the end of the day, who wins. Mm -hmm. And I know that because we helped fund it, we can have one member on there and I'm trying to like fix my spot on it. <laughs> I want to <laughs> help, but let's see who the SGA representative would be. But I know that we get to say it on it too. So it should be really cool. Can I answer that? <laughs> you can try, just make a video. <laughs> yeah, $5 is $5. Yeah, it should be a really good opportunity to, um, it's like their philanthropy week that week. Oh. Yeah. Cool. So there's a huge amount of stuff going on. Yes, definitely. As Fall Bash comes closer, it's just endless events that week. So If you're a WestCon student, you have no excuse for saying that nothing's going on or it's boring. Yeah, um, and a big thing that's happening right now with Tiesto is um, we really want to sell tickets because if we end up not selling the thousand tickets that we have to sell, um, it'll impede us having big artists like this in the future. So it's really imperative that everyone buys tickets at Tiesto and goes and like has a good time and stuff because or else our, I know that last year there was a statement about how WestCon isn't in the business of concerts anymore and we try to break that and bring Tiesto on and if this ends up being a flop then we won't actually won't be doing any concerts anymore. So it's really important that everyone gets excited about Tiesto and um, buys tickets or else, you know, we don't know what will happen with FestCon. 
<laughs> and concerts. What? Uh, how could it be a flop? I thought everybody was dying to see Tiesto. I mean, you know, a lot of talk. There's been a lot of talk about everyone being really excited, but I think just the community of college students, especially like we've asked SGA, like who's bought their ticket, and like no one raises their hand because we're just like a community of procrastinators. <laughs> but um, the deadline is coming up. It's um, November sixth is the last day to buy your ticket, and if a majority of them aren't gone, then that's going to be an issue for us. Yeah, no kidding. Um, we haven't um, decided yet. We're still talking to Dennis and everything, Dennis Lesko, to see if we're going to open it up to other CSUs and other um, colleges in Connecticut because it might have to get to that point if we don't sell the 1,000 tickets. And you don't want to do that, you know, because you want yeah. it to be like a WestCon thing. Right. But we might have to do that, um, so it's really important. I mean, a lot of tickets have been sold, so it's, it's been pretty good, especially for... Um, you know, concerts, but like, it's just been pretty good turnout, but we definitely need closer to the thousand. Hmm. And what, how are you doing with getting Tiesto to show up on our podcast? Um, so I've spoken to, um, John Murphy. He's, uh, so basically we just have to like make some questions and then we'll send it to Tiesto and he'll like review them, see if he's up for it. But right now it's looking okay. Looking pretty wow. good, but, um, no, no con concrete answer yet, but he's in China somewhere right now yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So he knows we can do it on the phone, right? While he's yeah. on his plane or something. And um, who's going to come up with the questions? Are you going to put them to SGA or what? Uh, really? I mean, our committee could do it. We could come up with something, you and I, or whatever really works. Yeah, let's um, just, just not miss it. Yeah, definitely. We definitely um, have to get on that. But um, just even if like, they wanted to like email um, SGA VP student relations at wcsu.edu, any questions that you might have for Tiesto. Anybody be, can submit questions. Yeah. What is it again, the email? SGAVPstudentRelations at wcsu.edu. And that goes right to you. Yep, right to me. <laughs> Perfect. So we're guaranteed to have those uh, questions asked at Tiesto. Yeah. I can't wait. Coming on. Hopefully he does. All right. Great. See you again next week, Barbara. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. I want to also thank our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who do all the things behind the scenes to make sure this podcast is available to the rest of the world. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe at WCSU Media on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher so you can stay up to date with all editions of WCSU 411. Leave a comment or a review and tell your friends to tune in to learn more about Western Connecticut State University and the interesting conversations like the one we had today with Dr. Teresa Canada. 